So the introduction says, what does it mean to shepherd our hearts? Last week, we were introduced to Wellspring's purpose and disciplines. And Scott talked about discipline number one, the heart. It's on the back of your notebook. So if you turn that over, we're going to look at that this morning. Um, Each week, we are going to look at all of the disciplines, our Wellspring purpose and disciplines. But this morning, we're going to just look at discipline number one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So what does it mean to shepherd our hearts? Okay, that's, it's a very helpful and descriptive phrase if we really understand what it means. It's not helpful, however, if we let it become merely an expression, a buzzword that we kind of throw around. And so this week, we're going to start the, the year off by looking at what it means to shepherd our hearts. And so then, as we examine what God has done for us in the gospel, we'll look at how we shepherd our hearts. And then we'll conclude this morning by um, looking at the why. Why must we shepherd our heart? So what does it mean? How do we do it? And why must we shepherd our hearts? That's what we really want to come away with an understanding of this morning. So first of all, what do we mean by the heart? So let's review what we learned last week. By heart, we mean the inner man. It's who we are at the heart level. It's who we are inwardly before God. It's how God sees us. It's where he examines us. It's not just a part of us, the way the world sees it. It's not only our emotions, um, but it's the whole nature of man. It's the source. It's the source of our feelings, our thinking, and our will. The heart is the real you. It's the real me. It's not just a part of us. It's who we are. So that's what we mean by heart. And the reason why we talk about the heart so much in Wellspring is because everything that comes out flows from the heart. Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So think of a sponge. What comes out when we get squeezed is what was inside all along. It comes out of our heart. So I want you to turn with me to Luke 6, 43. This truth is so foundational to everything else that we're going to talk about in Wellspring that I want you to look it up in your own Bibles so that you can see what Jesus said about this. You um, You looked up the parallel verse in Matthew for your homework, but I want you to look at it in Luke this morning. So Jesus is setting up a comparison here to help us understand what's true about the heart. He said, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart so in other words everything flows from the heart how we live reveals our heart when a thought comes into our mind what's the source you can answer the heart yes Um, When we desire something, what's the source of that desire? Where does it come from? The heart, yes. Our opinions, guess what? They're based on our heart. Our words, our actions, our reactions, all of them. Everything flows from our heart. And so this gives us a clear picture. Since the heart the heart is who we are and everything flows from our heart, then we need to understand how to care for our heart. And so that's why we have this phrase that you hear often around Grace Bible Church 
that we need to shepherd our heart. So what do we mean by the word shepherd? What does that word capture for us? That we use it so often that we even include it in the wording for discipline number one. In scripture, we find some very helpful description of shepherds that can help us understand what we mean by shepherding our heart. Good shepherds in scripture guard and tend their flocks, and they do it voluntarily with eagerness. Good shepherds lead, and they feed their flock. And they are faithful in the care that they give. They're watchful and alert, attentive to any dangers that would bring harm. Good shepherds dispel fear from their flock. And good shepherds of people train their flock to walk in God's word, to observe it. And that's a helpful description of what we are aiming for when we shepherd our hearts. We want to faithfully and eagerly guard and lead and feed and train our hearts to obey God, to dispel fear from our hearts by drawing near to God. Now listen really quickly to what God's word has to say about bad shepherds. They have no understanding they're senseless. They haven't sought the Lord. They haven't prospered. They destroy the sheep. They don't attend to the sheep. They lead the sheep astray. And I think this is interesting. They make the sheep forget their resting place. Bad shepherds sleep when they should keep watch. Now think about that when you think about shepherding your own heart. Bad shepherds sleep when they should keep watch. They leave the flock. They're foolish. They don't care for the perishing. They do not seek the scattered. They don't heal the broken. And they do not sustain the one standing. And those with no shepherd are described as afflicted, distressed, and discouraged. It does a sheep no good to have a bad shepherd or to be unshepherded. There's no protection from affliction or distress or discouragement. There's no sustenance, no healing for the broken. That is a very dangerous place for a sheep. And it's a very dangerous place for our heart. Now here's the good news. Jesus is our chief shepherd. He said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so our job in shepherding our heart is to bring that heart near to the good shepherd, to Jesus, so that we might receive the shepherding care that he has for us. And we do that first by meeting with God in his word and in prayer. And we do that daily so that we can continue to remind our heart of what is true from God's word throughout the day praying throughout the day. If we're not in his word, we're not going to be remembering that throughout the day. And we do that so that we are strengthened to think and to live and to grow in godliness as we trust and obey him. This is something that we need to cultivate as a discipline. It doesn't just come naturally to us. We need to discipline ourselves to this. That's why we encourage you to choose a Bible reading plan so that we plan to be in the Word daily, so that we focus on shepherding our hearts as we bring our hearts before God in His Word in a way that will cultivate a nearness to Him and grow us in our affections for Him. 
so that we are indeed walking in obedience and trust toward him throughout our day. And isn't that what we want? We know that's God's desire for us, right? We know that it is for our good. So that's what we mean by shepherding our hearts. Now, if you're new to Wellspring, we're going to talk about this all year long. We'll remind ourselves often. If you've already taken Wellspring, if you've been through it maybe many times, then we want you to grow in your understanding and your need for and your practice of shepherding your heart. So if you're confused about this, what this means, keep asking questions, please. Ask me, ask Suzanne, ask your discussion group leader. But we will be talking about this all year long because it's something we all continue to grow in. And because we really don't want um, to let that just become a term, merely a phrase that everyone uses at Grace Bible Church. We really want to understand its meaning. And perhaps where it's fallen into just that, we want to rescue it and put this meaning back into it. So then the next thing on your outline is how to shepherd our heart. So now we're going to open up this blue brochure. It says God's transformation of man from unregenerate to heavenly, the states and events of a believer's life. So all that's in this brochure is going to help us understand God's work in a person's life through the gospel to take a person out of their lost state and unbelief and to make them his own and ultimately to be with him for eternity. And so we're going to use this brochure to carefully look at what God has done for us in the gospel. And as we do that, we're going to talk about how understanding these marvelous truths from God's word can help us in the how of shepherding our hearts. So you also received that in um, worksheet formats, and that's these right here, they're double-sided. These are the exact same. It's the exact same information in both of them. Um, if you're one that wants to take notes, um, if it helps you remember, you might want to use these. If it helps more to follow along, use this, or you can also take notes on this. But I do, whichever one you choose whichever is more helpful. That's absolutely up to you. But I do want you to become familiar with this. And uh, so maybe if you lay them side by side on the tables if you have room. But this is why. Um, this is, we printed this in a format that folds up. And it's easy to keep in your Bible or a place where maybe it's easy for you to take out and to use it. We want this to be a helpful tool for you to use often. And I think after this morning, you'll see why. So whether you take notes on this or this, at least take this out at some point and become familiar with it. Um, I think it's going to be a tool that you will really appreciate. Because essentially what we have in that brochure is the gospel. We're going to look at God's salvation work in the gospel this morning. So if you open up the, it actually be helpful to do this so that you can see the top. We're going to look at the very um, top and kind of work our way across um, as a quick overview. So where you see people, that represents a condition of man, or we could say a state of man. So the first condition that you see labeled at the top is the unregenerate man. See that there? And then moving to the right, the next condition is the regenerate man. And then if you move all the way to the right, you uh, see the heavenly man. So the descriptions of these various conditions then are in blue underneath. And we're going to go through all of these. It's going to take us two weeks to get through this. And then in between those figures, you'll see that tan, those tan triangles up at the top. Does everyone see those? Those tan triangles represent events. So those are things that happen at one point in time. And then you'll notice that that triangle points to a tan pathway that leads all the way down to the bottom. Okay, does everyone see that? 
So this regeneration, here's the description of the regeneration event. Death, it's down at the bottom. And it was formatted that way simply for the purpose of space. Otherwise, it would have been way too long. So, um, But what we want to remember is the correct sequence of the, these conditions and events. And so that's why um, we have those at the top. So the unregenerate person becomes a regenerate person through the event of regeneration. That's why the regeneration triangle is separating the unregenerate man from the regenerate man. And then we see the regenerate man passes through the event of death and resurrection or rapture to enter into the heavenly condition. So there are conditions and there are events. So again, an event happens at one point in time, whereas a condition is a state in which we live. Okay, does everyone understand that? Anyone confused on that? Okay. All right, so you'll notice then that the people have both an outer body and an inner man. So what do we know about the inner man? What does that refer to? The heart, yes. It's who we are at the heart level, inwardly before God. It's how God sees us. And then the outer man is our physical body, or what the Bible refers to as our members. So it's our hands, our eyes, our mouths, all of the ways that we express what is in our hearts. So on the left, we have the unregenerate man. This is who we were apart from Christ. It's who anyone is apart from Jesus. And then the rest of the chart shows what happens to a believer. So moving across to the right, we see that first 10 event triangle, regeneration. This is conversion, when a person becomes a follower of Christ through the gospel. Because people like this, over in that left-hand column, as we're going to see, need only one thing. They need to be rescued out of that condition. And then next, you'll see the gray yellow figures representing the condition of the regenerate man. Um, that's what the Bible calls the new creation, or the new man. That represents where we are right now in our Christian life. Here, the inner man is fundamentally different. You see that? Um, whereas the unregenerate man over on the left, you see how he's completely gray? Now, notice, though, that um, the regenerate man is in the process of changing. So the color is changing from gray to yellow as you move to the right. That represents growing in godliness. We're going to talk about that next week. And then continuing to the right, we come to the next event, death. And that triangle represents the physical death of the believer. And then after death, there's a completely yellow figure without a physical body. And that shows that death means that the physical body is, is dead, but the inner man continues to live. And you'll see that it's all yellow. It shows that we will no longer be fighting against sin at this point because we're going to be with Jesus. And then the next um, tan triangle represents an event, the resurrection or the rapture. And then you'll see the condition of the glorified, see a condition with a glorified body. Now the word rapture, if you're unfamiliar familiar with that term, refers to what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Um, and it's, so it's when Christ comes and he catches up believers in the air to be with him. First, those who have died, that's the resurrection, and then those who are alive, and that's called the rapture. And that's when we get our new glorified bodies. So there's a quick overview of where we're going. Now let's look at it in detail. So we're going to spend some time looking at the unregenerate man. <clears throat> but before we do, I want you to listen to what Romans has to tell us. Romans 1, 18 through 21. It 
says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invincible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our foolish hearts plunged us into spiritual darkness. And as we look at the unregenerate man, we're going to see the state of that spiritual darkness. So this is who we were before Christ. We want to understand what God's word says to us about who we were. And we want to learn to use these truths to shepherd our own hearts. And hopefully you'll come away with a better understanding of that this morning. So let's look at that first blue section which says the unregenerate man. The verses in this section describe a person who is without Jesus. So you'll see that it, the first thing it says is that it is an unmixed sinful condition. Unregenerate man is completely unrighteous. That describes all of us before the gospel had impacted our lives and made us new. Okay, that was our identity, every one of us. And it's still the identity of everyone who is apart from Christ. Now I want you to open up your Bible to Ephesians 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And we're going to see what it says about us before we knew Christ. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So you see that on the chart? Where it says, Dead in sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And so next we have on there, Walks in sins. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked in the lusts, lusts of our flesh. And you have to see that on the chart as well. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So you'll notice that our flesh and our mind both indulged in evil fleshly desires. There was no tension between them. We desired to live that way. That's what we mean by unmixed sinful condition. It wasn't that we had some good desires, but we just didn't know how to carry them out. No, there were no good desires within us. Now drop down to verse 12. Remember that you also at one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And you'll see those on the chart as well. That was our condition. We, that was our state. We were without hope and we were without God. Colossians 1.13 says we were in the domain of darkness. We were, before Christ, under the authority and the power of darkness. We were under the control of darkness, and it blinded us from seeing our lost condition and the spiritual danger that we were in. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient and deceived. That's why we didn't understand how lost we were. We were deceived. And Titus then continues, he says, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. 
spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Colossians 1.21 says you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Romans 6 tells us that we were slaves to sin. Sin ruled every part of who we were. Sin ruled our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, and our actions. It mastered us. We had nothing within us to fight against it, nor did we have the desire to fight against sin. So you can see that there are many more descriptions on here um, of what we were as an unbeliever. And uh, I do hope that you'll take that out and, and look up the rest of those in the coming months as you pull this out. But now I want you to look at uh, that third column in this blue section where it says key descriptions of the old condition. Does everyone see that off to the right? First, you'll see that we were in an unmixed condition. We talked a little bit about that. But we were unmixed also in regards to death. We were totally spiritually dead. There was no trace of spiritual life in us. We were unmixed in regard to hostility toward God. There was no trace of a desire to honor him in us. We were unmixed in our love for self-rule and our hatred of God's rule. There was nothing within us to disagree or to fight against what, what we were doing as slaves to sin. And then the next key description is that we were unable not to sin, and we were unable to please God. No one in this condition was even able to subject herself to God, nor did she want to, or does anyone now in that state desire to subject herself to God? It is impossible not to sin in that unmixed condition. Even when outward appearances maybe look good, maybe the behavior looks good, the unregenerate man is incapable of God-honoring motives. And because this is an unmixed condition, there's no fight within. That's the next key description. We weren't fighting against sin, and we certainly weren't fighting to get Jesus, to know him, to love him, or to obey him. We were dominated by and enslaved to sin. Sin ruled our faculties, every ability of our body and mind, including our emotions, our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes, and our actions, everything was ruled by sin. We were in that state, un state unable to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. When we did try to battle sin, when we tried to change, the best we could do was exchange one sin for another, if we had any success at all. But there was no turning to God in it, no desire to submit to him, or to humble ourselves before him. And the whole time, we could not see that our best efforts were merely filthy rags before God. We weren't earning anything from God but his wrath. And then the final key description of that old condition is we were under God's wrath and judgment. See, there is a penalty for sin. Look at that section. We were hostile toward God, the creator, the ruler of the universe. How could God be just and not punish that? What we made of ourselves, what we earned, what we loved, how could God not judge us for that? God has a holy, righteous wrath against sin. There is a penalty, a judgment that will come, and it must be paid. For those who never turn to Christ in repentance and faith, 
They will bear that wrath themselves for all eternity in hell. So, practically speaking, why do we take the time to talk about un, our unregenerate condition before God saved us? Why do we point out what God's word has to say about the depravity before, about our own depravity before we knew Christ? We do so because it's essential to understand this. We must re remember this because understanding the greatness of our own sinfulness and rebellion before God is absolutely necessary to understanding the greatness of God's love displayed in the gospel. Does God love those who deserve it, who really aren't that bad? The message of the gospel is that God places his love on those who don't deserve it or those who outright reject him and his rightful rule in their lives. There's no other kind of person for God to love, right? And so that's why we look at this section that describes who we were because it's vital to use these truths to shepherd our own hearts. First and foremost, these truths help me shepherd my heart to God in worship, in humility, and in thanksgiving that he would save a wretch like me. Beyond that, these truths are a tremendous help in shepherding my heart toward fellow sinners. See, when I keep a clear view in my mind of who I was, it makes it much easier for me to be merciful rather than judge others or being personally offended by another person's sin. I can remember, my, I can remind myself of the, my own great sin from which God has rescued me. And I might grieve, I might still grieve over the, the sin, but I'll be patient and loving toward the sinner. When I shepherd my heart in that way, it might even be used by an instrument in God's hand to help that person see their sin. Another way that we can shepherd our heart with these truths of who we were apart from Christ is to let it drive us to proclaim the love of God in the gospel to the lost. Because if God's love was powerful enough to save me, to save us, it's powerful enough to save anyone. That reminder motivates me to share the hope of the gospel with others. So let's shepherd our hearts with what God has rescued us from, when we rehearse these gospel truths to ourselves, we need to include this. We need to remember the rebels that we were against the God of the universe, the creator God, who has every right to rule over everything and everyone that he created. He has the right to rule our lives and to remember that we were at one time his enemies. So let this become a continual part of your heart shepherding. Let it produce a gratitude to God in you and grow you in your devotion to Jesus. So pull it out. Look at these truths often of who we were. And now we get to look at God's answer, his solution to that condition that we were in. We get to talk about regeneration. Again, you see that represented by that triangle up at the top. And then if you take that pathway down to the bottom, you'll see the description down at the bottom. So how does a person ever escape what we saw in this blue triangle up here? the blue section, and come to have hope of any day living in this reality of someday this heavenly state that we'll talk about next week. How does that happen? How do we get from here 
over to here. There's only one way God regenerates us. Regeneration simply means new birth. We're talking about the beginning of our new life in Christ. When he declared us righteous. So that's the first thing you see that just to the right um, of that gray pathway on the bottom. God's solution to that old, old, unmixed, sinful condition wasn't to somehow clean it up or to fix it up. No, he starts over. God causes us to be born again. As we look at this event of regeneration, what's key is that it has all been accomplished by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now as we go through this section, there might be some unfamiliar terms or words um, as we talk about what God did for us when he saved us. But we're going to go over them. I think they're helpful to know. So that when you come across them, when you, as you're reading your Bible, you'll know what they mean. And uh, hopefully then they will give you an even greater understanding of God's great salvation work in the believer. So let's start where it says the gospel underneath there. So the first two things that you're going to see are adoption through propitiation and penal substitutionary atonement. So since it's so important for us to keep growing in our understanding of the good news of the gospel, we're going to talk about what each word um, and phrase means. So the first one you see is adoption through propitiation. So let's look at the word adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will human parents can take as a take as their own a child into their family and to give them their love their resources and even their inheritance to their adopted child it's a very beautiful picture that we have and yet even that picture is limited. It's a limited picture of what God does for a believer. Through adoption, according to God's kind intention of his will, God makes us his children. We are loved and cared for, even disciplined by him. He becomes our perfect heavenly father. But unlike human parents, God gives us his very nature to those that he adopts, to those he elects to adopt. He makes us his children in the image of his son. So not just giving us Christ's riches and blessing and inheritance, but he actually gives us his very nature. And how do we become to, have, to be recipients of such great privileged status before him adoption is ours through propitiation propitiation means wrath satisfied see if there was to have if there was any hope for us to have a relationship with God God had to have taken his cup which was filled with wrath toward us because of all that we saw in that upper blue column there he poured out that wrath completely, not a drop left, so that when he looks at us, he is satisfied because his wrath toward us is gone because it's been placed on his son in our place. So we have adoption where God makes us his children through propitiation. God's wrath is satisfied through Jesus' death on the cross. And these two gospel realities, adoption and propitiation, have something wonderful in common. They are two different but equally beautiful displays of God's great love for us. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. How do we know that God loves us? Because he made us his own children. And 1 John 4.10 tells us, In this is love, 
not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How does this verse tell us that God, that God loves us? How do we know that? Because he sent his son to the cross. Because Jesus satisfied God's wrath toward us. Adoption through propitiation summarizes the good news of the gospel. By capturing the relationship between these two great expressions of God's love for his people while at the same time acknowledging the seriousness of God's wrath against sin. We can't separate those two. They're both true. And then the next theological summary that you'll see there of the good news is penal substitutionary atonement. Scott went over this last week. Let's see how well you listened. Penal, what's the word we're to think of? Penalty. Right. God is a righteous God who in his righteousness will not leave sin unpunished. That's what we mean by penal. There has to be a penalty for sin. Substitutionary. What does that mean? One taking the place of another. Right. And it had to be by what kind of a substitute? An innocent substitute. We're given that picture throughout the Old Testament with a lamb being sacrificed for the sins of those under the Old Covenant. The lamb took the sinner's place. In 1 John 1.29, John the Baptist borrowed that Old Testament imagery of a sacrificial lamb and declared of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin." Of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the innocent substitute Lamb who shed his blood so that our penalty would be paid. And then atonement. If you take those words and that word and break it apart, you come up with at one. Um, atonement, atonement then is the taking away of sin and shame so that we might be made right with God. We might be made at one with him. So that's penal substitutionary atonement. Our penalty had to be paid by an innocent substitute so that our sin would be taken away and we could be made right with God. We could be at one with him. That's the core of the gospel. And when we share the gospel with others, we want to make sure that we remember these components as we share with them. We need to think a penalty had to be paid by an innocent substitute to atone for our sins so that we may be made right with God. These two theological summaries of the good news highlight different aspects of the gospel. If we put them all together, we could say we get God through Jesus' death in our place. And you'll see that on the chart as well. And think about that. Think about what great news that is. Again, these terms help us understand more and more what God has done for us in salvation. We can't allow them to become just familiar words, familiar phrases, and not stop and think and meditate on what they mean remembering what God has done for us, that ought to cause us to worship God out of gratitude for all he did for us in saving us. And now we're going to talk about more of the components of the good news. But first we need to understand how this comes to be true of a person. So you'll see that on the chart. You'll see the phrase appropriated through repentance and faith. Appropriate, mean, appropriate means to take possession of. So salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ is taken possession of through repentance and faith. It's the call that Jesus made early in his ministry. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, he tells us Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we have to repent and believe. To repent means to turn away from a life of sin and self-rule and to turn to God and submit to his rule. As we turn to God believing that our penalty was paid by Jesus to atone for our sin. Turning away from sin and following Jesus is something that God brings about. He causes us to be regenerated so that we do repent. We do believe that what Christ accomplished on the cross is everything that we need to be made right with God. That's how we get God through Jesus' death in our place. This is the event of regeneration. It's God's work in the life of a believer. So now we're ready to look at the regeneration event components. You'll see that to the right a little bit, where we see God's solution to man's unmixed rebellion toward him. Again, these are uh, once and for all time events accomplished by God in the life of a believer at conversion. So the first one we see is that God gives us new birth, new life. We are a brand new creation. And not what we were. Ephesians 2.5 tells us that God made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. He didn't just save us off over here somewhere. Merely saved from hell. But he made us alive together with Christ. And then the next thing you'll see is that he gives us positional sanctification. Believers are once and for all set apart or set apart from sin and set apart for God. First Corinthians 1, Paul writes to those who have been sanctified. In chapter 6, he says you were sanctified. God has set believers apart. Now, the word sanctified is used in two different ways in the New Testament. It's used to describe this positional declaration of holiness that God makes at salvation. And it is also used as to describe the process of becoming holy. We're going to look at that process next week. But here we're talking about the gospel event of regeneration. This positional sanctification means that God, in a once and for all event, made us holy in his sight. That was God's solution to all that we were, all that we saw in that unregenerate man section. The unregenerate man, that man, that woman was anything but holy. We needed to be taken out of that. God needed to give us new life. And God needed to make us holy before him. What else? What, what else uh, do you see there? was God's answer to what we were as the unregenerate man. What's the next one? Justification. Justification, right. When God rescued us out of that unregenerate state, he declared us to be righteous on the basis of faith alone to justify us on the basis of Christ's sinless record. What else? What was God's answer to our old unregenerate condition? Imputation. To impute simply means to credit. Believers are credited with God's righteousness, while Jesus was credited with what? Our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's answer to that unregenerate condition was to impute our sin to Jesus and to impute God's righteousness to us. There will never be a more amazing exchange than this. And yet nothing less would suffice to take us out of that unregenerate state 
and to make us something that would be acceptable before God. So what else do we learn about God's answer to who we were? Okay, right, he adopted us. We talked about that under the gospel summaries. He actually made us his enemies, his beloved children, forever by adopting us and making us his own. And then that brings us to union with Christ. God unites us with his own son. See, our huge problem in that unregenerate state was that we were without Christ. And God's solution was to unite us with Christ, therefore allowing us to share in all of the benefits and riches that result from Christ's obedient death, life, death, and resurrection. Your condition was so bad that God had to invest the very thing that was most precious to him, his son, and he unites us with his son. And that was such a powerful work of God that God says we can never again go back to that unregenerate state, um, who we were before Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we can never lose the benefits of the gospel, and we can never go back to what we were before Christ. Do we still sin? Yeah, I don't know about you. Yes, I do. We do. But a believer can never go back to being enslaved to sin. Sin will never again be our master. And then next on there you'll see expiation. And what does that mean? I think we put it on there. Sin removed. It's the taking away of our sin and our guilt. Hebrews 9.26 says, Jesus has made manifested to put, out, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's expiation, sin removed, sin put away. And we needed that so desperately, didn't we? If we were going to be made right with God, our sin and our guilt had to be taken away. So what's the next one that you see in there? It was God's solution to our old condition that we were in. Propitiation. It means bought with Jesus' blood. Ephesians 1.7 tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood. There was only one thing that God would accept to redeem us out of that life of slavery to sin, and that was the blood of Jesus. What else do you see on there? What's the next one? Reconciliation. Right. That means to be at peace with God. If we were to have any hope of being with God, we had to be reconciled to him. God had to overcome that separation that existed between us and him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God reconciled to us, excuse me, reconciled us to himself through Christ. God did everything that was required while we were his enemies to actually bring us to himself. And then what else has God done? He's granted us forgiveness. He has released us from the judgment that we deserved. And then the last one, the old man is crucified. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That is God's answer to what we had made of ourselves in the old man. He kills it. We can never go back again. He has made us something completely new. We were dead, but he gave us 
life. We were engaged in evil deeds. He set us apart in holiness for himself. We deserved judgment. He justified us. We were unrighteous, but he credited to us his own righteousness while he credited Jesus with our own sin. We were children of wrath, but God adopted us. He made us his own children. We were alienated, but God united us with his son. We walked in sin, but he expiated, he removed that sin. While we were once under God's wrath, he propitiated, he satisfied his wrath against us through his son. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus, having paid our debt, a debt that we could never pay on our own. He reconciled us to himself. He forgave our sin. The riches of what God has done for us in the gospel just go on and on. So there are many more. I hope that you take um, some time with beyond this morning. But I do want us to just look real quickly. Um, follow along as I read that list of the regeneration event benefits. These are ours. Again, don't allow these to become merely familiar terms or phrases. Think about what God has done for us. These are unchangeable, objective realities secured by God for us at the time of our conversion. We are loved by God. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by Christ. We are a member of Christ's body. We're members of one another. We have confident access to God. We're under grace. We're saved from God's wrath. We are free from condemnation. We are unable to be separated from Christ. We have peace with God, with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our citizenship is no longer here. It's in heaven. We are declared righteous. And all of this because of what Christ did for us on the cross. That's the regeneration event when the gospel is applied to a sinner and she becomes a saint. Having this applied to us gives us hope and we get to look at that hope next week. What a costly salvation. What a costly salvation. For those of us who have been believers for a long time, is it easy to lose sight of that? That's why we need to rehearse these truths so that we don't lose sight. We don't forget what a costly salvation we have. What a complete salvation. Regeneration makes our life in Christ today and in eternity possible. So how do we shepherd our hearts with these truths? When we look at who we were, all that God has done for us, and we remember that none of, it, none of it is deserved, it melts away any self-righteousness that we have, doesn't it? Any self-reliance or self-confidence, it melts away any pride. The more we saturate our hearts and our minds with the salvation work of God, the more we'll worship him and the more we will labor to live in humble submission and obedience to him. Out of a heart of gratitude for all that he's done. Let's pray. And then Cammie's going to come up and lead us in worship again. Father, our hearts 
are overwhelmed as we look at your gospel, all of the truths that we've seen this morning. Help us to comprehend how amazing your salvation is, how complete it is. Father, I pray that the, this never would become so familiar to our own hearts to the point where it loses its impact. Father, our, my prayer is that we would always respond with gratitude for all you have done that would cause us to worship you because we are in awe of all that you have done for us in your Son. It would cause us to be obedient out of a heart of gratitude that our desire would be to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is with an overwhelming sense of awe that we pray, we thank you, and we worship you now in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.